Thanks, Kelly. Hi, everyone. And I'm just going to share my screen really quickly and get the PowerPoint up. There we go. So hi again. Uh, good morning. I'm Ria Pereira. I'm an attorney at uh, the Pennsylvania Utility Law Project. Joining me today is Elizabeth Marks, the executive director over here at Pulp. Uh, today we're going to be talking about, about how uh, will we keep the lights on addressing utility needs of survivors of domestic violence. So for those of you who are not familiar with us uh, yet, we are PULP, we are a statewide organization uh, within the plan system. We're administratively housed within RHLS. Uh, we assist low-income residential utility and energy consumers uh, to connect to and maintain affordable utility services and energy services within their homes. We also provide a number of training and technical uh, assistance uh, support services uh, such as this presentation. So um, before we get started on our uh, agenda for today, we wanted to mention if anyone has any questions or thoughts uh, during our presentation, feel free uh, to either uh, use the chat function or just unmute yourselves. If uh, you prefer your camera on, feel free to do that as well. Uh, you know, we uh, want to uh, facilitate whatever is easiest for uh, this group. So today uh, we're going to be talking about the intersectionality of uh, domestic violence and uh, utilities and utility advocacy. We're going to uh, get you guys familiar with a number of utility assistance programs uh, that can assist low-income consumers and victims of domestic violence to stay connected and reconnect to services. And we're going to also talk about what happens if there is a utility dispute and uh, people are having issues staying uh, connected uh, or need reconnect. So uh, to get us started, I'm going to turn it over to Liz to talk more about the intersectionality with domestic violence and utilities. Thanks, Ria, and good morning, everyone. Uh, really great to see so many uh, familiar names uh, in the session and uh, uh, to be here with you again this year. Um, so I just we want to first uh, take a step back and make sure we're all on the same page about why we're here today talking to VOCA grantees about um, utilities, because uh, it's not entirely obvious, but, you know, first level setting, and I love definitions, um, as many of the lawyers uh, in this room probably love definitions as well, good to root yourself in that. And I think that the thing we want to start with is just a reminder, and I know many of you are already well versed in this, but um, domestic violence is really not about just the physical violence. Um, you know, it's a it's a uh, pattern of power and control over an intimate partner. Um, uh, it can be uh, manifest in so many different ways, as I know you all know, in uh, working with your clients. It's uh, physical, it's sexual, it's emotional, it's economic, and it's psychological. Um, and all of these combine to exercise control over that person. Um, so if we can go to the next slide, I'm, I'm sure you all are very familiar um, with the power and control wheel. Um, and we're going to really be honing in on the use of economic abuse um, and that intersectionality um, and how that plays out for uh, utilities and utility access. Um, if we can go to the next slide, I'm going pretty quickly here. Um, but I think, you know, really what we're talking about is, today is going to be the economic abuse aspect 
um, which can be a really powerful barrier for survivors to be able to break free um, from an abusive relationship uh, because without the economic means, you can't be successful at, at establishing a new home. So, you know, all of the different kinds of economic abuse, it may manifest in um, opening or abusing somebody's credit, bouncing checks, um, in the workplace, stalking them at work so they can't hold a job, right? It's it's always, uh, sorry, Liz, um, but we just can't have that here at this workplace. Um, uh, causing the person to be late all the time, sabotaging them with the pandemic, uh, you know, interfering with their ability to log into work from home, um, uh, refusing uh, child support, of course, um, uh, housing, right, and the interference with lease provisions um, in that is, of course, um, the interference with utilities, right? So it's either not allowing uh, the uh, survivor to access any information about the household finances. Uh, they may be very behind. They may force the, the survivor to put the bill in her name and then, uh, you know, not give her the resources or allow her the access to the resources to pay it, um, not allowing her to sign up for uh, assistance, um, all of those uh, different types of uh, ways of controlling. Can we go to the next slide? So we're here to talk about that, that intersection of DV and utilities within that economic abuse context. Um, and really it's about uh, easing the transitional barriers because if you know how uh, to, to navigate the utility system, um, you can help a survivor to be able to access utilities and set them up in their name. Um, really we see when folks are in transition um, from, you know, out of an abusive relationship or um, uh, in between, uh, you know, there's all kinds of safety concerns, but the ability to set up utility service is a, you know, a common barrier we see um, over and over and over again, where you can't get new housing, right? You can't um, set up service in your name until you've paid off that utility debt that may, you may have had nothing to do with, um, no control over, uh, but it's preventing you from getting public housing uh, because if you have utility debt, many times you can't even, uh, you know, if your name comes up on the list, you can't get access to public housing um, or private housing. Uh, again, if you can't get utility service turned on in your name because of existing utility debt, uh, that's going to be a big barrier. We also regularly see uh, issues with child custody come up when uh, service is not able to be turned on and maintained. Um, you know, we've had cases where custody has been transferred to a, a batterer because the judge thinks it is safer for that child to be with the batterer than to be in a home without electricity or running water. Um, so these are all really uh, critical issues facing survivors um, uh, that we need to, we're going to un unpack a bit and give you some tools to be able to um, uh, help survivors uh, when they present with utility issues. So I'm going to pass it back to Rhea uh, to take us through some of the assistance programs. Thanks, Liz. Now, before we talk about the utility specific assistance programs, we did want to 
kind of give you a differentiation here between regulated and unregulated utilities. Now, regulated utilities are generally going to be those large utilities, those electric, natural gas, and water companies that are subject to the jurisdiction of the PUC, the commission. Uh, because they are subject to the PUC, consumer complaints can be filed with the commission, and they have to follow certain regulations related to billings, collections, and terminations. And they are also required to offer assistance programs, sometimes we call those universal service programs. On the uh, flip side, we have these unregulated utilities. A lot of times, it, these are going to come under the form of those municipal utilities, those electric co-ops, uh, because they're not under the jurisdiction of the commission, you're going to be looking at complaints filed at Court of Common Pleas. There are some uh, uh, standards and the statutes that uh, unregulated utilities have to follow. Uh, but by and large, there's not going to be seen uh, a standard billing collection and termination uh, kind of across the board. Uh, there's also no real requirement for those unregulated to offer assistance programs or payment arrangements. So a lot of times when you look at consumers who are having problems with unregulated utilities, uh, we see if there's a regulated utility that uh, they have service with that uh, can be leveraged resources to kind of put some of those resources then into unregulated utilities that they might have as well. So let's talk more about uh, specific assistance programs through utilities. Uh, as uh, we get into this, this discussion, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, what we generally see, but it, the real trick is check with the specific utility that you're working with to see if there's uh, specific standards or differentiations from these general rules. So first, let's talk about the first big bucket of uh, utility-specific assistance programs, CAPS, Customer Assistance Programs. So CAPS offer a number of benefits, uh, the first being uh, discounted bills to qualifying CAP participants. So in addition to that, many, though not all, CAPS offer some form of arrearage management. And this essentially happens in the form where those pre-programmed debts, those pre-programmed arrears are frozen, and then the CAP participant, the CAP customer, can earn forgiveness over time with each uh, full on-time payment that they make while enrolled in CAP. So uh, general eligibility requirements, again, this is going to vary by utility, so check which utility you're working with. A income no greater than 150%. Uh, the federal poverty guidelines is uh, one we see a lot of times across the board. A lot of utilities or some utilities, we do uh, see a payment troubled uh, kind of requirement. Some of this can be potentially waivable with advocacy to the specific utility as well. Uh, with CAP, uh, customers, CAP participants do have to verify their income. Uh, there is often a recertification requirement where, where uh, periodically they do have to provide income information and household information. So next big bucket we're going to talk about is hardship funds. So hardship funds, again, utility-specific program, uh, the benefits of hardship funds, it's really a, a cash grant through the utility. The amount is going to vary how much that's going to look like, but uh, a lot of times we do see uh, a 500 being kind of your maximum uh, hardship grant amount. Just like CAP programs, there are a number of eligibility requirements. Uh, we often see, though not always, again, 200% FPL or below set as kind of your ceiling for receiving a hardship uh, grant. 
some uh, utilities do require what we call a good faith payment uh, showing, which essentially means that the customer has uh, made a payment to the utility within the last few months of a certain amount. What uh, that amount is could potentially uh, vary by utilities again. The real uh, kind of advocacy tip here is that sometimes uh, utilities uh, will make exceptions for that good faith payment showing you uh, do have to ask. However, some utilities, again, require a showing of temporary hardship, uh, which uh, could be another place for advocacy as well. Now, uh, some utilities, though not all, uh, do prohibit cap customers from also receiving hardship grants. This is going to vary greatly by utility. And again, with some advocacy, this can uh, be a requirement that is waived, especially in the case of survivors of domestic violence. So let's talk about the next bucket, which is the low income usage reduction programs, otherwise as known as liar programs. So liar programs are really geared towards uh, improving energy efficiency uh, in households with low income consumers. So essentially what happens is uh, the utility uh, will come in either in person or more and more because of COVID virtually and do an energy audit and uh, potentially uh, recommend measures uh, that could improve energy efficiency within the home. This can include appliances, weather stripping, pipe wrapping. Uh, Liar has uh, also uh, a number of de uh, general eligibility requirements. A lot of times we will see it set just slightly higher than that cap FPL maximum. So uh, we often see 200% FPL, though again, this is gonna vary by utility. Uh, a lot of utilities are uh, requiring a uh, showing of uh, usage that's higher than the average so that that low income uh, consumers house does have high usage in some form. In the case of tenants, because liar does sometimes come in uh, and make improvements to the household, uh, there is often a requirement to obtain landlord permission. Uh, there is often also a requirement that uh, the tenant be at the residence for a certain period of time. We often see 12 months, but this can vary by which utility you're working with as well. So uh, last bucket of utility specific programs we're gonna talk about are CARES programs. These programs are often kind of uh, forgotten in kind of the suite of universal service programs that we uh, talk about because uh, they often uh, uh, come along with like the caveat that utility has wide discretion, uh, essentially with what might be done in terms of the CARES programs and what might be done to resolve consumer issues within CARES. So the program is really targeted to uh, customers who are having trouble paying their bills. And uh, they're also having uh, you know, short-term problems that are causing the inability to pay. They can uh, offer a number of services through CARES that we see. We often see budget counseling, uh, potentially special arrangements for bill payments and referrals to social service agencies. This might be particularly helpful for uh, consumers who are survivors of domestic violence. If they need additional referrals and more kind of wraparound services, CARES could potentially be a, a good place uh, where they get really more specialized assistance for their needs. Yeah, if I could just interrupt quickly. This is yeah. Kelly. I'm launching the CLE poll box. 
you just respond yes or no, it'll disappear from your screen and you'll have two minutes to do so. And this is for attorneys for CLE credit. And Rhea, please feel free to continue. Thanks very much. Thanks, Kelly. And I wanted to mention, since we are at our last big bucket of uh, kind of programs here before we get into more uh, broad Pennsylvania assistance, that if anyone does need additional information about these programs, if anyone does uh, need uh, more uh, information in general about anything we're going to be talking about today, we do have an advocate manual through pub that is available. Feel free to reach out to us if anyone does want a copy of that. And I'm going to turn it back to Liz to talk about LIHEAP. All right. Um, so LIHEAP, the first thing to know about LIHEAP is it's currently closed. Um, and if we can go to the next slide, um, the program typically runs every year from November to April. Um, uh, we are pushing very hard uh, on DHS to open this uh, program early this year. Uh, they had, uh, you know, nearly double uh, what their funding usually is uh, because of additional allocations through the uh, American Rescue Plan. Uh, so we were hoping that they would have opened a summer program allowing new applicants uh, to get crisis funds to avoid a termination. And we'll talk a lot about terminations in the second half of this presentation and how to avoid those. Um, so, you know, if you, there are still lots of different uh, tools to avoid termination, uh, but LIHEAP is really the best um, because it pays down uh, debt, it can avoid a crisis um, and, uh, we're hopeful it'll open quickly in the fall uh, and remain open uh, for longer than usual to allow everyone to, to get their uh, debts paid down. But typically, I want to make sure everybody knows more about LIHEAP because every year your clients, uh, if they are low income, uh, they can reapply for LIHEAP and get cash assistance uh, for their home energy costs. So it's a really critical program uh, to help reduce high energy burdens, which is the percent of income that somebody pays for energy costs. And low income households have very high energy burdens, typically between 10 and 30% of their income on energy costs alone, which is a huge chunk of money. Um, so last year, just to give you an idea of what next year's program might look like, though with the extra money in this coming year, um, we're anticipating some significantly higher grant amounts, both for cash as far as the minimum cash amount and for crisis as far as the maximum uh, crisis grant. So last year, the maximum was uh, $1,000 cash, minimum was 200. The crisis was anywhere from a minimum of $25 to a maximum of $800. Um, there is also uh, a little known aspect of LIHEAP um, that's important to keep in mind should you have somebody with an inoperable heating system, because LIHEAP, when it's open, will repair or replace a broken furnace. Um, they'll also give emergency measures uh, if necessary uh, in between be until they can get out and fix it. But there's a pretty quick statutory turnaround um, uh, for them to get out and fix um, or replace a uh, broken furnace. The only exception for that emergency furnace repair is if somebody moved into a house, purchased a house that had no heating system, they won't just put in a heating system. So it has to have been operable heating within the last two years um, and they'll fix it for free. Um, 
we anticipate that there will be some summer supplemental grants for those who received LIHEAP in the last program year. So from uh, November to uh, the current, uh, the end of April when the, the program this past year closed. Um, we don't know what those grant amounts will be, but they're likely to start showing up sometime mid to late summer on people's utility accounts if they received LIHEAP in the past. And there'll likely be some more details to that that we'll share and we'll try and circulate. Hopefully you get our training notices. So we'll have another training on uh, the LIHEAP supplemental program. And every year at the start of LIHEAP season, we provide a webinar um, on uh, what's new for the LIHEAP season this uh, in the coming year. We should have some program details coming out in the proposed state plan on June 12th. Um, so we'll have a much better idea in a couple weeks, but right now we're not entirely sure what'll be in that plan. Um, it is something that people can apply for online through Compass or uh, at their county assistance offices, which we learned last week should be reopened to the public uh, for in-person applications by mid-July. Um, so we don't have an exact date yet from DHS on when that'll happen, but it is coming soon. Um, there are two kinds of uh, Grants, of course, as I mentioned, the eligibility for that is one household income has to be at 150% of the poverty or below. They have to have a home heating responsibility, which can be a, uh, a direct responsibility. They have it on their uh, bill or they might have it as a designated or undesignated portion of their rent. All of those situations would be uh, eligible for a LIHEAP cash grant. They also have to be a resident of Pennsylvania. A trick here, uh, you have to be a resident. Uh, that just means you live in Pennsylvania and don't intend to uh, uh, leave at the moment. Um, some Every year we have one or two cases where uh, a county assistance office is interpreting that as having to live in Pennsylvania for six months or something like that. That is not at all the rule. Um, with a crisis grant, you're eligible uh, with those first three criteria plus two additional ones. One, you have to have an actual or imminent home heating emergency, which is typically defined as having a termination notice or having 15 days or less of fuel in your tank, um, or you know if it's wood or coal in your wood or coal pile, um, uh, then you can can qualify for a crisis grant. Um, the grant also has to resolve the crisis, um, but a, a key part here is. Um, the utility is often going to accept less than the total amount owed in order to resolve the crisis. Essentially, it, it stops them from terminating for the next 30 days, right? So even if you owe, say, $3,000, the maximum crisis grant is $1,000, the utilities will often accept the $1,000, stop the termination. Um, but if you don't deal with that debt in between, um, you're going to be right back in termination, uh, either at the end of the winter moratorium um, or, uh, you know, uh, when the uh, rest of that money um, comes due. Um, can we go to the next slide? Want to note here uh, the uh, LIHEAP rules for immigrant status. Um, a really important piece is that it, uh, a mixed status household is certainly eligible for LIHEAP. Um, the 
there are also certain lawfully admitted non-citizens that can receive LIHEAP. They are eligible. Um, undocumented persons are uh, an ineligible person, but the household is still eligible. What they will do if there's an ineligible uh, person in the household is that person will count for the purposes of determining household, or I'm sorry, Yes, the person <laughs> will not count for the, the purpose of determining household size, but their income will count um, for the purpose of determining household income. So if you have a four person household, two people are undocumented, two people are US citizens. The income of all four will count, but it will be a two person household. Um, so again, certainly can apply and I would encourage uh, all folks working with immigrant populations to complete that application if they're eligible. And um, ERAP. Uh, so I hope everybody knows that the Emergency Rental Assistance Program uh, is currently operational in all 67 counties. Um, the eligibility guidelines for that is 80% of area median income. Um, when you get this PowerPoint, there is a link to the DHS website that will show you what 80% of area median income is for each county, because it is different for every county. Um, uh, if they've had a reduction of income, incurred substantial cost, or experienced a financial hardship due to COVID-19, they are eligible. I will note, we believe that uh, all households have incurred substantial additional costs because of the increase in utility usage um, and other household expenses as a result of the pandemic. Being at home, you are using more water, you are using more electricity, you are using more gas than ever before, and the data is all bearing that out. Um, the benefits, uh, you can get uh, uh, rent debt paid for up to 12 months right now, though so the new money that's coming through the American Re Rescue Plan uh, will extend that to 18 months. Um, you can also get additional three months of future rent. And then for our purposes, of course, is the utility and home energy costs and arrears. Um, uh, and it applies to everything except um, uh, internet costs. Though in some counties, uh, the ability to get uh, assistance for other direct or indirect expenses is going to um, uh, cover broadband or telecommunication services. Not every county is uh, applying that, but some are. Uh, applications are available through Compass, though some counties have their own application. Um, if you go through Compass, it will re and you put in what your county is, it'll redirect you to the right county uh, to complete that application. I'll note here, we really want to hear if you're experiencing issues uh, on behalf of your clients uh, with getting access to these programs. Um, there is a lot of money, uh, millions and millions of dollars to get out very quickly. Um, and we're, you know, we, we are hearing of a number of barriers for folks. Um, and if we don't know the information, we can't be pushing it with DHS to fix. Um, so if you're running into issues in your counties, please do reach out to us. Uh, there's also a question is, is the median income always calculated on a countywide level? For this program, yes. Um, uh, the area median income would be on the county level. There is a statewide area median income, but this program's not using that standard. Um, and I will, with that, turn it over to Rhea to get us into termination and reconnection defense. Thanks, Liz. 
So first, we wanted to give you guys an update on the current state of the utility moratorium in Pennsylvania. So uh, originally in the COVID-19 pandemic, you saw a more blanket moratorium on utility terminations that was uh, subsequently rolled uh, back uh, with the exception for protected customers. So at the beginning of this year, you were seeing uh, that protected customers, or so customers at or below 300% FPL, uh, could not be uh, terminated, assuming that they could apply for available assistance and request payment arrangements. However, as of April 1st, the prohibition on utility terminations was lifted for all customers. Uh, there are certain more flexible payment arrangement standards that the Commission has has put in place temporarily. We're going to be talking about that in the next few slides. Uh, but uh, we wanted to let you know that as of right now, utility more or utility terminations, I should say, are on the table to give you guys a scope uh, of uh, the problem uh, that consumers might be facing. Uh, as of February of this year, more than 800,000 residential utility counts were at risk of termination and more than 850 million in regulated utility debt was reported. Uh, that's up 44% year over year. So we are uh, seeing um, uh, very concerning numbers in terms of uh, potential utility terminations that might be on the table. So let's talk more about some common uh, kind of uh, things that you're going to see in terms of termination, some of the regulation requirements in terms of terminations. So uh, most likely if you're working with a customer consumer uh, if there's termination on the table you're going to see uh, the reason being non-payment of an undisputed delinquent account we're going to talk more if there is a dispute within a utility uh, about uh, what might be in the account what can potentially be done later in this presentation uh, but just be aware there's a number of reasons that uh, termination might occur also uh, including uh, failure to comply with payment arrangement terms uh, failure to complete a security deposit or uh, failure to permit access to equipment. So uh, certain rules of terminations, uh, when you're seeing terminations actually occur, terminations can occur Monday through Thursday. No Friday terminations, no holiday terminations, uh, no day before the holiday terminations. So even if there is uh, a termination notice that might seem a little deceptive about the date, be aware of the days that uh, terminations may be actually be on the table. Uh, because uh, we're uh, talking uh, specifically about uh, victim survivors here, uh, there is also uh, a rule that a victim of domestic violence who has a PFA or other court order, uh, that, and that other court order, by the way, has to have uh, clear evidence, what we call it, of domestic violence. If there is a victim or survivor that has one of those orders, they may not be terminated for non-payment for residential service already furnished in the names of a person other than the customer. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about some specific uh, assistance and protections available for uh, victims of domestic violence also, uh, but this is uh, absolutely a big one if you do have a survivor who's trying to uh, access utility service who has debt in the third party name. So some notice requirements uh, that utilities uh, are required to follow, at least those uh, you know, bigger regulated utilities. Uh, the written notice requirement, uh, there is a, a kind of a window between uh, 10 and 60 days uh, 
prior to termination that uh, the customer must receive notice of termination. In addition to that, there is a personal contact requirement. So three days prior to termination, the utility must attempt some form of personal contact. This doesn't necessarily mean it has to be face to face. It can be by phone, it can be electronic. The kind of advocacy tip or kind of warning that we give here is that the customer, the customer might have affirmatively consented to receive this kind of notice electronically without necessarily even knowing it. Often this happens upon sign up and you think of all the kind of things you're agreeing to when you're signing up with anything, let alone a utility uh, that you consent to. And you know the customers and consumers you're working with are no different. In addition, uh, there is uh, another kind of blanket protection for survivors with those PFAs, with those qualifying court orders. So for all customers, the general rule is that uh, there has to be what we call a last knock. So uh, immediately prior to termination, there has to be an attempted personal contact. Uh, for the general uh, uh, non PFA court order population, this has to just be an attempt. However, if you have a survivor who has that PFA or other court order, if there's no personal contact accomplished, then a notice has to be posted at the property and the termination then has to be delayed for 48 hours. So uh, the kind of advocacy tip here is that if uh, the utility doesn't know that it is a survivor who might have one of these PFAs or other court orders, uh, it might uh, be beneficial if uh, the customer does give notice if termination is on the table, or if they're worried uh, about their utilities, that they do have a PFA or they do have a qualifying court order to the utility. So some strategies we kind of give as a uh, uh, list or an order of operations to advocates who are working with uh, consumers facing termination is first look at those assistance programs we uh, talked about. So, uh, you know, those CAP programs, those hardship funds, along with LIHEAP, as Liz mentioned, LIHEAP is a very strong tool during its season to help with terminations. Um, Again, there's additional protections available for uh, customers with PFAs or other court orders. Uh, the biggest or one of the biggest ones is that they cannot be charged for debt accrued in someone else's name. Uh, they can potentially also be uh, eligible for uh, more flexible payment arrangement terms. And as we talked about, there is an additional notice uh, prior to termination of service. So uh, there's uh, payment arrangements, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the more flexible payment arrangements that have been temporarily put in place by the commission, uh, which uh, allow customers to essentially uh, pay debt, put in a payment arrangement over a period of uh, time. And we're going to talk about some of the advantages and pitfalls of that as well. Uh, medical certificates uh, for customers with serious illnesses can potentially uh, postpone termination for a period of time. Each medical certificate is a 30-day postponement of termination. Uh, we're going to, I believe, talk about this in the next few slides as well about uh, kind of uh, limits on medical certificates, especially with how many you might obtain. So uh, winter moratorium is another uh, kind of uh, protection in place during the winter months. So that's December 1st to uh, March 31st for households. Generally, you see uh, with utilities, households at or below 250% FPL is kind of your ceiling. Uh, this is a, a kind of moratorium during the winter on terminations is kind of the caveat. It's not a guarantee of restoration of service. However, 
it often overlaps with lie heap season. So in combination, it might mean that there is additional space for advocacy to get uh, people reconnected, especially with those additional uh, resources on the table. So uh, kind of a statute of limitations, if you will, there's a four year rule, arrears over four years uh, cannot be the basis of termination, especially with those uh, longer term debts, or if you have a customer who's been uh, disconnected, uh, terminated for a period of time, this might be a helpful rule as well. So let's talk a little bit more about payment arrangements. Uh, so a, a payment arrangement is essentially uh, an agreement uh, where the customer accepts liability for a debt and then they pay that portion, uh, whatever is put in the payment arrangement um, over a period of time. So uh, a few caveats, a few warnings here, because the customer does have to accept liability on the debt, do not accept liability for a debt that uh, you do not agree you owe or the customer does not agree that they owe. Um, this uh, is uh, kind of coupled with advice I'll give a little bit later about how you work with utilities if there is a dispute on the table. If um, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but if there is a payment arrangement the customer cannot afford to pay, we obviously don't uh, recommend that the customer enter into the the payment arrangement. This can you know be a little bit more obvious than it. Uh, is because a lot of times what you have is customers can potentially be entering into payment arrangements uh, over the phone through automated systems as well they might not necessarily know that they're in payment arrangements so it does get tricky um, figuring out what the customer has agreed to sometimes so uh, some additional information about payment arrangements we're going to kind of uh, parse out payment arrangements into two groups we're going to talk about utility issued payment arrangements and then payment arrangements that are issued through the commission. So first, let's talk about utility issued payment arrangements. Utilities generally have broad discretion to enter into um, reasonable payment arrangements. Uh, and consumers on you know, the flip side of that coin can then negotiate better payment arrangement terms. So, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned, the commission in rolling back, it's more blanket uh, moratoria on terminations has put in guidance uh, that utilities must offer certain payment arrangement terms at least through the end of this year. I've listed them here for you. I'm not going to repeat them all to you, but just be aware that uh, that 60 month uh, payment arrangements are going to kind of be uh, your uh, cap for customers with incomes at or below 250% FPL. So uh, let's now talk about uh, essentially PUC issued payment arrangements. Again, these are going to be uh, payment arrangements issued through the commission. Uh, generally, you're going to see one payment arrangement issued through the commission. Sometimes you'll see a second one if there is a, a change in household income or the like. Uh, but there is a kind of warning here with commission issued payment arrangements is that cap customers, one, cap customers are not generally eligible for payment arrangement debt that is accrued through cap. But also um, if uh, there is uh, essentially a, a defaulted payment arrangement with the commission, uh, you might not get one through the commission. It might also be harder to get payment arrangements subsequently through the utilities as well. So uh, again, I've uh, listed some payment arrangement 
terms, lengths for you here. I'm not going to kind of uh, read them off to you, but uh, some commission payment arrangement lengths, again, are 60 months for customers at or below 150% FPL. There are payment arrangements uh, available also for reconnection, uh, 24 months uh, for customers with income at or below 100% FPL. Full payment may be required if customers have defaulted on one or more uh, payment arrangements again. Okay, so uh, as we talked about with the utilities, the commission has also indicated that through at least through the end of uh, this year, there's some more flexible payment arrangement uh, terms in terms of commission uh, payment arrangements. Uh, so uh, just uh, kind of mirroring the uh, utility guidance, uh, 60 months for consumers, customers at or below 250% FPL. In addition, uh, one additional payment arrangement for customers who have previously defaulted on commission issued payment arrangements, regardless of a change in income, which might be helpful for those customers who have not been able to keep up with payment arrangements in the past. And uh, all, there's also some uh, additional guidance about small business customers as well. Uh, it's at this point uh, unclear, at least based on commission guidance, whether CAP customers can get a, a payment arrangement. So if anyone is seeing any variations across the board, please let us know. We are also interested in that as well. So uh, some additional information for uh, customers who are victims of domestic violence with those PFAs or other court orders. Uh, like I mentioned, there potentially could be more flexible payment arrangement terms that are offered to them. Um, so what uh, essentially the language that utilities have to follow is that they can uh, emeritize the, the debt over a reasonable period of time for victims. Uh, there's additional factors that can be taken into account. Uh, keep in mind that for all customers, the size of unpaid balances and the ability of an applicant to pay could also potentially be taken into account as well. So uh, cap arrears, again, is going to be kind of differentiated as kind of a, a carve out for payment arrangements. So uh, as I uh, mentioned previously, uh, arrears accrued while in cap are generally not available uh, for payment arrangements from the PUC. Um, it, sometimes, a lot of times, it's not even available for, uh, for utility issued payment arrangements. However, the customer applicant uh, can essentially pay only the portion of their missed cap payments, so those cap arrears, and uh, be reinstated in the program, which can help their overall uh, bill payment essentially. Um, uh, in addition, reinstatement and cap should freeze the non-cap debt and allow forgiveness over time as well. So uh, as I mentioned previously, medical certificates are a tool to uh, prevent termination or at least temporarily stop termination. They're not a uh, guarantee uh, that the debt, the underlying debt will be taken care of. So a household may obtain a medical certificate to stop termination if the household member has a serious illness or a medical condition that requires utility service to treat uh, their illness. Whether a medical certificate is written and issued is ultimately at the discretion of the medical professional, the person's physician that they are working at, whether they'll uh, essentially issue the medical certificate that then will be provided to utility. Um, an example of a medical condition we give is an asthma that requires, or asthma, I should say, that requires air conditioning in the summer. 
So uh, again, medical certificates stop termination for 30 days. Uh, the customer may submit a new medical certificate every 30 days if she is paying or he is paying current charges by the due date. Uh, the customer may renew the medical certificate up to two times, so that's 90 days total, uh, even if they are not paying the current charges by the due date. So I'm gonna turn it back to Liz uh, to talk more about connecting and reconnecting to service. Great. Um, hi again, everyone. I'm just gonna touch on a couple of things, and if we can go to the next slide. Um, you know, there's avoiding that termination, but then what do you do to get people connected? And I, I said earlier when we started this presentation um, about the barriers to getting into public housing. Um, and that's probably what we see as the most pressing need that I'm, I'm guessing you will see with your survivors um, in working with them on other issues is how to, how to get utility service either reconnected or connected at a new place following a termination. It can be a pretty daunting task if you aren't aware of what the protections are, right? Um, so the first thing that everybody should know is that if you are cap eligible, meaning you have income at or below 150% of the poverty guidelines, um, you cannot be charged a security deposit. This is a huge change in policy that we won, uh, you know, a number of years ago, and that uh, utilities still are charging, right? Uh, they will assess a security deposit um, uh, in order to turn on service. And it is uh, unfortunately uh, usually up to the uh, customer to say, I'm low income, I can't pay this. And they should be waiving that security deposit. There is a statutory prohibition on it. So it's not even just a regulation, we're talking about regulation and statute no security deposits for CAP eligible customers. Doesn't mean they have to enroll in CAP, right? There are some reasons why a household may not want to enroll in CAP, particularly on the gas side, given uh, changes in uh, usage, um, but usually CAP is the best uh, road to go because uh, it evens out your bill throughout the year and makes it at, at a targeted level of affordability. So I would certainly recommend that people enroll in CAP. It's just not a requirement. Of course, as, as Rhea mentioned, uh, the protections for customers with a PFA or other court order, um, they cannot charge uh, survivors with one of those court orders. Um, arrears accrued in someone else's name. And this should apply to any third party. Some utilities have very narrow um, interpretations right now, and those, I will say, are flat wrong. The, the regulations provide that it's any third party uh, debt. And so if, you know, if survivor was living with uh, the batter and the batter's brother, this is a real life case we had, right? Um, and the batter's brother is who the utility debt is named in, right? The utility was on, they were all living together, batter's brother racked up some debt um, on the utility bill. Survivors should be able to set up a new account without any of that debt being transferred. 
the occupant liability rules that are normally apply do not apply when there's uh, a PFA or other court order. And remembering that is probably the most important thing uh, you can walk away from this training is um, that those are hard and fast rules. They aren't always applied correctly. And so it takes an advocate to intervene on their behalf to contact the utility. And of course, if you ever run into a situation where you need some help, you can't remember what we said in this hour-long training, uh, shoot us an email. We'll give you both a contact at the utility to reach out to, and we'll give you the tips to, in order to, to handle whatever it is that your client's facing. Of course, the four-year rule, always look at whether or not there's a four-year, uh, uh, whether or not it's been more than four years that the debt's accrued. Um, Rhea already walked through the utility payment arrangements, um, but of course there's both utility payment arrangements and PUC payment arrangements. Uh, the, the length of time is a little different for uh, restoration as opposed to um, preventing service. So again, it's always important to intervene if you can before service is terminated. And we'll talk about how to do that and what the process is um, at the commission in the last minutes we have. Um, but I do want to stress and Rhea covered what some of the changes, the temporary COVID changes to uh, payment arrangement terms are. There are a number of utilities that are still just offering the um, you know, whatever somebody will agree to rather than the maximum length of time that they can have. So it's really important that people not agree. They often get caught up in automated systems. A lot of the utilities now have what's known as an IVR, right? You call in and they're like, are you having payment troubles? Click one and you go through the whole thing and they spit out a payment arrangement. It's usually very unaffordable, right? 12 months, 24 months, not the five years they're supposed to get under this term. So somebody should always push through and talk to an actual person at the utility, tell them they cannot afford it and that they need a longer payment arrangement. Um, you know, survivors and uh, their advocates uh, really have to, to, to um, advocate on this. Um, so I'm going to, um, oh, let's go to the next slide. <laughs> Forgot these ones are in here. There's a couple other really important protections to know working with survivors, uh, especially for privacy and safety. One is uh, a survivor can set up a third party notification. So if mail theft is a problem, and I know it's a problem for a lot of survivors, um, they can set up notifications to go to a trusted person or even an advocate, right, that's working with them um, if they're not getting the, the mail and the notices they need to get like really important termination notices. Um, they can also set up an account password and alerts. Um, that is something I absolutely recommend. We've run into a lot of cases where batters um, will call in. They have they know all the, the survivor's information. They can get into the utility account and shut it off. Um, so, you know, we've had some pretty extreme cases where batters will shut off, you know, heating service in the middle of winter while the, the survivor's at work. Um, um, because they can access that account just knowing the, the right information. So setting up an account password um, is a really important piece. Um, uh, and let's go to the next slide. Uh, the last part that we'll mention is we talked all about utility uh, protections, but also 
don't forget that there's utility relief that you can request in a PFA order, um, right? And so requiring the batter to, to maintain service in their name um, and to pay for that service can often, you know, especially if uh, the debt was accrued in both of their names, right? All those protections we talked about, those special protections for victims with a PFA or some other court order showing they're a victim of domestic violence, they're not going to uh, necessarily apply if the survivor is the named person on the account. So it may be that you need to get some other relief uh, through the PFA process. I know that's not possible with all judges, but certainly if you're not asking, it's not going to happen. Um, and I'll turn it back over to Rhea for the last couple of minutes to take us through some of the dispute process. If I could just interrupt, this is Kelly and I'm going to launch the second CLE poll box. This is for attorneys to get CLE credit and the box will be up for two minutes. And Rhea, please continue. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly and Liz. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but in the last few minutes, we wanted to give you some information about uh, what happens if there is a dispute essentially with the utility. So first, always, 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 uh, go to the utility to figure out what's going on and negotiate so this is important for a number of reasons first utilities do have significant discretion in terms of what they might do is uh, to resolve uh, customer accounts especially if termination is on the table but negotiation is also required prior to filing a complaint so when you are talking to the utility a lot of times it's important to first figure out what's actually going on with the account it's not always clear on the face of the bill if there is termination on the table, ask for a stay of termination while the account is being uh, being reviewed. And you know, as you do more utility work, you will uh, kind of start to develop relationships with uh, the people you're talking with within the utility uh, to kind of help in coordination about customer issues. So. Uh, just some basic, very basic information about complaints with the PUC. There are informal complaints and there are formal complaints. So informal complaints are in front of the Bureau of Consumer Services. We've provided the number uh, for you guys here. Uh, just FYI, uh, filing an informal complaint will temporarily stop term termination if filed the day before uh, termination, uh, the day of termination, I should say. Uh, so uh, really important uh, to get those informal complaints in. Uh, in the case that a formal complaint is necessary, be aware that is uh, an administrative hearing before an ALJ. Discovery is available. Appeal is available. That goes up to the Court of Common Pleas. A licensed attorney uh, has to represent before the PUC, but advocates and paralegals can obviously um, and are encouraged to uh, kind of uh, give pro se filing information, provide uh, general information about uh, customer rights. So some general resources we ha have for you here, the top is us. Uh, we have a utility hotline that can either be called, and I believe Tuesday through Thursday, the list can correct me, or is our current days of operation for a utility hotline. And uh, there is an email address for that as well. Uh, for advocates, we have provided our general pulp uh, number and email address that goes to all of us as well. Uh, OCA and the PA Legal Aid Network, once you get this PowerPoint, can also be useful consumer uh, links and uh, resources as well. So uh, we wanted, I guess, to open it up if there's any last minute thoughts, questions, concerns in the one and minute we have left. <laughs> Rhea, there was a really good question about tips on reaching out. Um, for uh, 
assistance at utilities other than going through the customer service line? So I answered in the chat, but if you could talk a little bit about that um, uh, for the benefit of, of the recording, I think that's a really important Absolutely. So like Liz said in the chat, we do have contacts uh, within major utilities, uh, which uh, are consumer facing, and um, we're not able to provide a list of utility contacts, uh, like a general one, but we can connect uh, advocates in house counsel to who uh, might be uh, kind of the go to person for universal services in general, uh, that if there's a specific consumer who's having, uh, you know, a utility issue, we can absolutely provide some information and uh, try to help them navigate that system. I'm not sure, Liz, if you want to add anything to that. Um, no, I think that's exactly right. You know, reach out to us. We can both, you know, give you some tips to make sure you're asking. It, there, it, as much as the utilities say there is not magic words uh, in order to get things, uh, there absolutely are magic words. And so we're happy to give you that kind of technical assistance. If you reach out to our main pulp email address, which is pulp at palegalaid.net, it'll go to everybody on, my, on the team and um, we will, you know, answer your technical assistance question uh, and provide you whatever guidance you need. Um, there is one more question here that I want to, and I know we're, we're a minute over, but I think it's important to answer this. Um, the, the, from the slide, do you anticipate summer LIHEAP grants will or will not be available to folks who did or did not access LIHEAP during the most recent season? Um, and the answer to that is that we uh, were just informed last week that DHS is not intending to run an open summer program, meaning they're not going to reopen it to new applicants. It is most likely that grants, um, supplemental grants will go to uh, households that received a LIHEAP cash or crisis grant last year uh, during the regular season, which opened November 1st and remained open until April 30th. Um, we are pushing back on that. Uh, we think that's a really bad decision um, because uh, there are a lot of folks that didn't make it into the program uh, during the regular season, and we are hopeful that DHS will change its mind on this, um, but I can't give you a, a good read on whether or not we'll be successful. I tend to think that we will not, uh, given the number of new programs that DHS is trying to stand up through the summer, including a low-income water assistance program, which we didn't cover in this session, but we'll have more details on soon. We'll offer some more training on that. Um, there's, you know, the ERAP program, there's the, the uh, home, Homeowners Assistance Fund. All of these programs are really putting a strain on our agents. Um, so again, I'm hopeful we'll get a real summer program with new applicants, but um, don't know that that'll happen. Um, uh, with that, um, I think that ends our session, Ria. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I was just going to thank everyone and thank Kelly. It's, all, it's always a good time, a pleasure to talk to everyone. And Thanks I'd like everyone. to thank thank you both for being here and sharing this information. Hopefully, um, for some of our advocates at least, this was new information that they can take back and help um, their clients with um, to be a little more successful with things in their lives and get more stability. Um, so everyone have a good day. 
we have a session tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Well, not weekends, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so everyone have a great day and thanks for attending and we'll see you later. Take care.